Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. What are the differences in training methods in Europe versus America? Are coaches in general evolving with the game? What are some of the things Coach Thorpe has done with his NBA players to improve them? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. Today, I'm pleased to bring on the show David Thorpe, who's a longtime NBA analyst, author of Basketball is Jazz, Story and Lessons from a Basketball Lifer, working with NBA players. Oh, sorry, and he's working with NBA players since 1999. Um, so, David, forgive me for that extra long uh, intro to your book title, uh, but thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Great. And uh, punctuation is always important. So don't let the kids, if you're in school, don't forget to add that. So uh, <laughs> anyhow, uh, really happy to have you on. I feel like we live somewhat parallel lives um, on either coast, uh, sort of discussing and analyzing the NBA. I, I, just one quick trip through your timeline. It looks very familiar to mine, I guess, sans the video clips. Is that, is that fair? Sure. Yeah. Uh, my, yeah, I strictly tweet game stuff and I don't do a lot of it. I'll probably start doing more this year for the first time but yeah i the video stuff i used to do was always on espn mm -hmm. i didn't do it anywhere else but uh that's kind of what i do i have a consulting business and i've been helping nba you know guys a long time and i grab clips i was doing it all morning this morning i have some clients that play over in europe and sending them clips of what what, what they did poorly in their games yesterday and yeah i've been doing that kind of stuff so yeah very similar so are you taking those clips and then like recording voiceover over that or writing on the screen or what, how do you share the information they need to know? Typically, I'll discuss something with them, uh, be it text and or voice, and then I send them a 10, 13 second clip of what it is I'm talking about. And then we might even talk about it afterwards. Okay. Um, yeah, the, uh, every player learns differently and every player digests stuff differently. So um, I have some really visual learners uh, I have some guys that just need to, to talk me. I just, as long as I talk them through it, they see it. And uh, I mean, I've been doing this a long time. So every guy's different. Uh, I've got a couple of young guys now overseas. So I have to, uh, I have to do more video with them because they really can't see it yet. One of them, one of them is an NBA prospect from Israel. He's only 22. He's probably the best under 24 player in Israel. And uh, he's got a, like, a, he's a little Goran Dragic version. Not that little, really athletic super energetic point guard uh, that just beat Hapoel Jerusalem, which was Amari Stoudemire's team last year in a tournament they, who won the championship last year, Hapoel did. They just beat him, and this guy's got a chance, but he's 22. He's a kid, so you really got to go slow with him, whereas uh, my more veteran guys, you know, it's pretty easy. Sure. Uh, is he in the, in the Luka Doncic mode, or is he someone different than that uh, the guy in Israel? What's his name? Uh, Iftak Zev. He starts for a team called Naharia. Everyone recruited him, but he, he wanted to have the ball in his hands as a 22-year-old and make all the mistakes you need to make when you're 22 and just learn. Um, he's, he's an, he, I, I, to me, he's more like Drogic. He's lefty. He doesn't necessarily oh, put his head oh. down and just fly, 
like Drogic always has done. Uh, he, he has his head up pretty good. He sees the floor pretty well. Shoots it. Shot. He, he played for their under uh, their under twenty five team that played in the World University Games this year. Lost to Purdue in overtime in the Final Four in uh, Taiwan. And no Chinese Taipei. And um, he shot like fifty percent from three. He can really shoot. Hmm. But I like guards. You know the way the league's playing now. Guards that that have a great skill, great. Obviously, who doesn't love them? But playing incredibly hard at uh, that position really can can turn dividends. And he, he's a guy that really is kind of a beast. Okay. Well, we'll have to keep our eye on him, and perhaps a, yeah. a, a breakdown could come out of that too, if I can yeah. pick up some footage. Because um, sure. I love that. I love trying to get into the other markets and seeing like what else is happening. Because yeah, who knows? I think the next Michael Jordan could very well conceivably come from somewhere else, uh, not from the United States. It seems like there are so many billions more people. Uh, right? It's only a matter of time. Sure. I mean, the argument that people make that the game was so much better, the, t- the league was so much better, the NBA 30 years ago just falls flat for me because we have a global talent pool now. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I do when I consult with teams is uh, if you get out of America, teams in both basketball and, and soccer or European football, uh, they own, in a sense, their region. So they can grab a 12-year-old and develop him and have a great chance of keeping him, whereas, of course, in America, that can't happen. I was texting with Mark Cuban about this because right now the best kind of soccer academy in, in the country is based in Dallas. And I read an article about them, and he was quoted as being a fan and so forth. And he wants to do something similar in basketball in Dallas. But he can't find a 12-year-old or 15-year-old that's really talented and own him. That guy is going to be playing AAU and going to high school and going to college. You have no control. So in, as I help these teams overseas – we want to increase our, our talent pool base. Uh, so if you've got, you know, if you're a town of 500,000, we want to get as many kids as possible playing your sport in your facility or, or within the construct of what you're doing because you never know when the next Michael Jordan's going to come. You want as many kids involved. What you don't want is for them to turn 17, suddenly figure it out athletically, but they're not playing your sports anymore. They're playing something else. And so that's my point of the NBA is you're, you're right. He won't be like Michael Jordan, but the next greatest player in the world, the odds are he's going to come from somewhere outside the continental U.S. Uh, It certainly could be Canada. Uh, But, yeah, Europe, Asia, the game is a global game. Africa, you know, the Antetokounmpo, who's got both European and African roots. Mm -hmm. He's going to he has a chance to be the best player in the league in three or four years. Yeah. Or or even sooner. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think obviously the thing that holds him back is is the jump shot. And we've seen some improvement. I kind of wanted to throw that out there to you because obviously you work a lot with jump shooting and it certainly I do as well. And certainly I spend a lot of time just frame by frame going over mechanics. What do you make of the whole Markel Fultz thing that's been popping up here on, uh, on Twitter and in the news about his shot? Have you seen this? I've only seen the headline. I haven't watched it yet. I'm going to figure watch them play sometime this week. What are they saying about it in particular? I knew shooting wasn't his strength. That doesn't worry me so much, but what are they saying? Well, here's the thing. He did shoot elite in, from three in college. Uh, yeah. his, his free throw percentage wasn't great, but basically he's completely revamped his mechanics, and now it is he's shooting it like way out in front of him here, and it's a total hitch, and it's, uh, it, it, it's frightening. But what's even more frightening about it is that he's doing it now. 
you know, like a week before the season starts or when the season's starting. And, and apparently Brett Brown had come out and said something like the fact that it wasn't them. They didn't want him to do that. But he's, you know, just trying and experimenting. Um, and I, I just feel like, you know, and I don't know if people really understood on Twitter. I was like all caps saying this is not the time to do that. And I'm wondering if you can, you know, even illuminate further as to why it's a, a damaging idea a week before the season starts. Well, yeah, I mean, I probably didn't think didn't think a genius to to say what you just said. I agree with you. Uh, I have a couple of thoughts. One is, first of all, I always kind of teach arms folded. I want the ball tied to our body when we shoot the ball. That's where your power base is. Um, the idea of doing something this late before the season starts and to and believing that it's going to translate during the season is a little bit silly. Most players in the height of competition, and we're talking about the NBA here, they're going to kind of revert back to what they've always done. Uh, unless it becomes habit. And so that takes lots of hours. That takes lots of reps. I've always been a big believer in seeing long-term, big picture. So uh, if I have a player at 21, Omri Caspi is an example of a guy that I had at 21. He made seven threes his entire career in the EuroLeague. He just, it just wasn't part of his game. And so we just started slowly kind of building that shot uh, that first year. He shot well. I didn't see him for a few years. He was busy working with other guys with the, the Kings, and I didn't get involved with him. And then when I next helped him, he had called me because his shot had just fallen apart completely. It was a mess. And so once again, we didn't say, okay, you're going to be a great shooter this year. What we said, we just try to rebuild what we thought would be a good foundation for him, and we thought it would take a couple years. But we said to him, you're going to be a 40% three-point shooter if you just give it time and continue to grow. It's almost like growing a garden. For Fultz, I have no idea if this form is going to work for him. Every every person anatomically is built differently. It's almost like, shots are almost like fingerprints. Uh, you you don't really see too much that, that two that are exactly alike. But if he just stays with it, maybe it could work out for him. I don't like the idea of being in front of his body, not just because there's no power way out there, but also it's where the defense is typically. Yeah. So why would you want to put the ball close to where the defender is? That that's weird to me. I'm gonna I'll read up on it. Like I said, I saw the headline. Yeah, uh, and, there, and there's and, video on Twitter. It's easy to find. You'll see it. And uh, and the thing was, is you know, a couple of weird things. Uh, and funny that you mentioned Omri Caspi because he shoots it a little bit away from his body. And because I was watching him practice the Warriors uh, the last week, and it's interesting. And I I wouldn't be surprised he was having trouble if he shot shooting that way from three because of the power. It sort of dissipated a bit. Um, but uh, he also talked about, uh, Fultz was talking about how he wanted to continue to raise the, his set point. And, you know, I think when you and I were growing up, you know, that was sort of what we wanted. The idea that, you know, you better have that ball, elite highbrow ridge or higher or, or even over your head. And, you know, it seems to me that now that we've seen Steph and Lillard and um, – uh, Nash and these guys shoot like almost like little kids in front of their face. That that's really not such a thing that we should stress anymore, right? I I look at it. I have a 16 year old son. I, I help his AAU team and his high school teams, and he shoots just like Steph does. It wasn't my decision. It was him watching a million games of Steph, and it's very easy and natural for him. When I say shoots like Steph, I mean mechanically, not result wise. Right. <laughs> he he can really shoot. I think he's got a chance to be a great player. He's just a sophomore. We'll see. But what I've taught him is. The closer you get to the rim, the higher the ball has to be in your release point, typically. There obviously are exceptions. Right. Um, but you should not be taking a shot from three, unless it's the end of a shot clock or, in the high school case, end of a quarter, that needs to come from above your eyes 
in order to get it off unless it's in those positions because it means you're contested. Why would you take that shot? It's a bad shot. So yes, uh, releasing from your chin to me isn't a big deal at all because you're supposed to be wide open to begin with. And speaking about chins, if you're in the habit of keeping yours clean shaven, then you must try Harry's razors. I gotta tell you, the handle is my favorite part. It's ergonomic and balanced perfectly, and I also love their shave gel. Since I started using Harry's razors, people have been commenting on my smooth face a lot, and who wouldn't want that? And if you're one of those bearded millennials, get with the program and let us see your face. What are you hiding? If you're wondering how well the blades are made, the founders Jeff and Andy make them in a German factory. The highest quality razors for half the price of the leading five blade razor, you know what I'm talking about. And they're shipped right to your door, no asking the store clerk to open a display case. Best of all, if you go to harrys.com slash coachnick, you'll get their trial set for free. Just cover the shipping cost. You'll get their awesome handle, five precision engineered blades, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. I'm positive you'll feel the same way I do about Harry's, so just do it. Harry's.com slash Coach Nick and get your free trial set today. It might even help with your jump shot. You know what's funny is the more and more I study this, the more I learn about this, the more I realize that I, don't, I, get, I, get, I start coaching less. You know what I mean? I almost say there's less things that I'm, more con I'm concerned about. I used to threaten my high school players, my varsity guys, where if you didn't shoot the ball from up here with your eyebrow ridge or higher, you're not playing varsity. I literally used to say that, and I would torture these kids. I've called them you know, years later to apologize for a lot of this stuff. And now I'm like, give me my feet alignment the way I want it. Give me rhythm the way I want it. And I like, you know, with the dip. Uh, I like to sway at the end with the feet as they flow forward. Uh, and then everything else, like you mentioned, as far as physiology, uh, the, phys the physics or the, sorry, the, the, the uh, what's the word, the, the biomechanics and the functional yeah. movement. Yeah. Again, there is no ideal in for each individual per per person. And I feel like, uh, I, are we getting closer to that realization across the board? Or are we, do you still see or observe coaches that are just like trying to force, you know, circles into squares? I think there's a lot of really bad, dumb, ignorant coaches. Yes, uh, they tend to be older. They tend to be my age. I'm 50. I'll be 53 in February. And they just don't care about what's new. Mm -hmm. They're just going to do what they've always done. Uh, luckily, those guys every year get closer and closer to retiring. They might be great coaches in many respects. They're just not very good shooting coaches. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I see all types. I see really sharp young people. Of course, there's some amazing coaches that are my age and, and, and better than me or older than me even. Uh, but they tend to be embracing new, new ideas, new technologies, new theories. Uh, it's like any other business. There, you see the gamut of everything from A to Z. We see all of it. Uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in it's got to be a natural feel. You and I can debate all we want about the dip and the, and the swing forward. I think it's awful. Uh, it doesn't mean that if you do it, you can't shoot. Of course you can. Some of the best shooters ever played the game did that. Uh, I, all uh, of the great shooters did it? <laughs> uh, what's that? All of them. Well, Larry Bird didn't dip it down below his waist and let his feet fly forward. Uh, Reggie Miller didn't dip it below his waist and have his feet fly forward. In fact, you would never, that's my point I was gonna make with both of those two. Uh, the, Jim Furyk is one of the best golfers ever. I don't know if you ever follow golf at all. Do you know what that is though? It sounds vaguely familiar, but I don't know. Jim Furyk has like the craziest swing you could ever imagine. Okay. You would never teach anyone ever to swing the way he swings. 
He's going to be, you know, maybe earnings top five golfer all time. Amazing in Ryder Cup and President's Cup. He's older now. In fact, he might even be closing the Champions League now. He might be 50. But it worked for him. And I'm a big believer in that in shooting, period. It's got to be if you if you naturally dip it, I think it helps if you're uh, taller and quicker uh, because you need to have space. That, that's a longer release. But if that works for you, and obviously you can make it, uh, I am not someone that would have you change just for the sake of, well, you got to do it this way. No, you got to make the shot. I'm a big believer in you got to make the shot. And so I like what you said. I think you made a really good point about saying less or coaching less. I definitely subscribe to that. Uh, I, in my book, I have a chapter. Uh, I don't remember the name of it anymore, but it might be like it might be called Two Minutes or Less. And I'll never speak to my guys, including my NBA players, for more than two minutes at a time. Oh, I mean, and typically it's 30 seconds, 20 seconds. I want to get them getting reps. I want I want to talk while they're playing, while they're shooting. Uh, if I'm talking about basketball stuff, obviously if I'm lecturing about how to treat women or whatever, I may lecture for 30 minutes if I need to for younger kids. But I, I like the idea of talking less, learning how to, that the economy of language is such a key aspect for coaching, making it simple. Uh, and over the years I've learned, I can say what used to take 50 words, maybe six now because I've done it a long time and I know which words really work. And it's the same thing, so think about a sculptor, right? That's what you're talking about. You get a guy who's shooting the ball and you're just, you're just barely touching some things, polishing this here and there, especially when you get to the pro level. Obviously at the high school level, because I'm helping, I mean, my son started playing in sixth grade, you're really kind of building from the ground up. Uh, but we're talking about older, more experienced, you know, guys that live in the gym all the time anyway. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, I definitely believe that that we got to talk less, observe more, support, and give small little things here and there. Sure. And I think it's funny that the power of language is so is so powerful. And I know you've talked a lot about that, and we're going to get that in a minute. But as far as even just when you're trying to – at high school level, eighth grade level, it's the, the, the verbal cues that you use that generally tend to be – you know, it's one word, like wrist. Wrist, right. elbow, right. you know what I mean? And exactly. I, maybe I even heard yeah. that from you years ago, and I'm, I'm assimilating it now. But certainly, yes, you know, it's really important. Like, those are the things, because I've seen it at the NBA level. I've seen it where they come out, the assistant or the coach comes out, and they talk for 15 straight minutes about what they want to do on defense. This is in training camp. And then another coach comes out and speaks for 15 straight minutes. And another coach, and they, yet they never move into space or actually do what they just spent that time talking about. And as if they're going, and by the way, credit to the team. I won't say which team, but they stood there at attention, listened, you know, they were focused. I mean, they were professional doing that, but I was amazed. I would have been like pacing back and forth and looking all around. I don't know what, but uh, it, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. And even with the shooting stuff, too. Um, you know, there are some some coaches out there that are revered that I when I listen to a lot of things they say, it's so rooted in 1994. Uh, and it's not really what happens. And I think their argument tends to be, well, they'll figure it out. We have the basic points that we want to really stress fundamentally. And like when they don't do those things, it's because they will eventually figure out that that's what they need to do, as opposed to me. Like when I, the dip is a good example. You know, I mean, listen, we, every good shooter I've studied for the last 50 years, and we're talking six inches to a, a foot. It's not like we're dipping. By the way, Ray Allen had a huge dip to his knee, practically. Um, and he had one of the fastest releases in the NBA. So uh, for me, rhythm and power. Now, Bird and those guys who are like two motion shooters is it, almost a whole other class. Like that, those are giraffes, and I'm talking about sparrows, or I don't know. Um, and so, right. So, we're, but, but the point being is that you know, 15 years ago, I'm not even sure we could have this conversation because 
it, I don't even think anybody appreciated those those nuances of the jump shot. Well, yeah, the, you know, the science of all of this definitely is a big deal. Uh, and I'll give you two funny quick stories. One is, um, you remember, you know, Mike Fratello. I do. You know, Mike Fratello was, yeah. So uh, I was working a five-star basketball camp in the 90s, and he was a head NBA coach, and we had seven or eight, maybe nine future NBA players in the camp that week, and maybe another five or six NBA players that were counselors who were still in college at that time. Uh, very talented players that you would know right away. And he, we did a lecture every day at Five Star Camp. There's four or 500 kids there. Uh, there was a, a famous guy would come in and give a lecture. And Fratello's lecture, I'll never forget it. It was 100 degrees outside. We were indoors in a non-air-conditioned non gym in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in July of whatever year this was. And his topic was the eight ways to defend the pick and roll. And every coach loved it, including me. Boiling hot, we were dying. You, know, you work your butts off at these camps, and we're writing everything down and studying. And these poor kids who can't lay down on the ground, they have to sit up at attention. Eight ways to defend a pick and roll. You think 15-year-olds care or 7-year-olds care about that? Uh, that's when I, when I decided, really, because I, I had brought a bunch of kids that I was training back then. I used to have a basketball academy. And I brought like 60 some of my kids to this camp. And I felt like every one of them is gonna go home and tell their parents I never wanna see Coach Thorpe again, because this <laughs> is the worst hour of my life. And I was sense of the idea that, that as a teacher, you gotta be aware of what your students are going through. And then the second thing I'll say, which I, I think you make a good point about the old school guys, I did a clinic once in Canada. It was myself, one of the, one of the real famous referees that you see all the time is from Minneapolis. I just forgot his name. And because uh, I think they brought him because he was the shortest flight to Ottawa. And then um, Rick Majerus, who's, who's now deceased. And I did I did a big thing about uh, my shooting clinic in the morning. And I talked about shot fakes a lot. And we demonstrated a lot of shot fakes in the drills. And Rick came on. He wasn't a very nice guy. Really brilliant. His, his book, Life on a Napkin, is amazing. But he was kind of a jerk, actually. And he treated me great, except for in front of all these people who seemed to really like my, my clinic. First thing he said is, Coach Thorpe's a great guy. He's got some innovative ideas, but nobody shot fakes anymore. It's long gone. I don't know why I wasted your time. with. So I just was surprised. I get back to the hotel. My wife is in the room. We put, they put on a preseason game. It was October. And the, Maver <laughs> right. the Mavericks were playing and just shot fake, shot fake, shot fake, freeze fake. And I just thought, why? You know, just because it's new doesn't mean it's wrong. And by the way, they've been faking since the, be the game began. But that reminded me very much of that mentality of that generation as if they invented the game and they're experts and we're a bunch of dummies. Right. This is not the case. I can, I can learn from anybody. Oh, I, by the way, the one thing I've taken from B-Ball Breakdown and having done this long enough is I get to encounter people and coaches from every level across the entire world every day, via email or Skype or calls or whatever, or clinics. And that is exactly what you discover is that the best coaches is some guy like in a high school in you know Palo Alto right now. Like he's probably the best coach I've ever seen, a buddy of mine, Doc. And it's like nobody hardly knows about him. I mean, actually they do now because I've done some videos with him. Right. But but uh, you know, it's like those are the guys who really know how to coach. It's like you could be an assistant in the NBA, maybe a former player, and you take over a team. It's got three all stars on it. And you've never had to learn how to coach out of a bag. Like, you know, when you are coaching a high school team that has nobody taller than six feet and you're going against the team that's won 90 straight games in your league, right? Like that, there's some value in, in being in situations like that where 
I think sometimes people just assume, oh, well, how about this one? Uh, people just assume that if you are a coach in the NBA, you are obviously the best coach in the world. Like, that's why you're there. And not to, I don't want to shit on anybody in the NBA. There's, everyone is good, and they all know what they're doing. But I think there's a mentality out there uh, that, it, you know, that it kind of is, is off. It, it, would you agree with that? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I never, you never want to make generalizations about anything. I know you, I know you don't mean it that way. Right. I, I do. I do. Well, first of all, I like what you said about the high school coach because I've long since said there's a lot of NBA coaches year to year that wouldn't win my county with talent. <laughs> okay. They're, 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 they're guys that haven't coached before. They don't really have a great command, but they have a great pedigree or resume or whatever. So I totally agree with you on that. And we were talking before we started taping about Ryan Pannone, uh, the 15-year assistant of mine, who's now the youngest head coach in Europe. He coached in Slovakia. His team, I think he's got the ninth largest budget in the league, and they just lost in overtime to the defending champs. He's going to do great. He's going to be – he might be an NBA coach one day. He's going to be a great coach somewhere. Uh, certainly in Europe for a long time. And uh, I turned 50 a couple of years ago and he was invited to my, my wife through a roast and toast. And it was very sweet. My family and closest friends came. Uh, some NBA people came and, and roasted me, but also said some really great things. But Ryan said the best thing of all to me, which was the first day I ever met him and, and let him help me. He was 19, just turned 19, I think. And I had four or five NBA guys in the court and some other high-level college guys, and uh, I don't remember this, by the way, but Ryan said it, and I believe it to be true. He said that he noticed they were doing something that he thought he could correct, and he said it to me quietly. He's like, hey, coach, you know, I'm seeing this. I don't know what it was. And apparently I said, we'll tell the guys. And he was just thinking, what? I'm 19. I'm a high school coach. What are you talking about? And But I just said, tell the guys. And I said, hey, fellas, Coach Pannone has a really good point he wants to make to you. And Ryan felt like he was 10 feet tall when he heard that. I, to me, we're all just trying to help players get better. And as soon as we think we're better than someone, I just I never think about that. I never think about, oh, I'm better than him. Because maybe I'm not. Maybe I am with the player that I'm working with, but maybe he's got a better feel for the guy he's working with. And maybe if he knew my player, he'd help him too. I've just never taken ownership or possession that way. We're all in the same business trying to help people get better at basketball. And the truth is we learn as much because we're always, like you said, you pick up so many things the more time you spend with players. And and I, I famously say, I, I've never seen a shot I can't help except for one player. Uh, it was just, he was never an NBA player. He was a very good college player, but I had him when he was like 14. And um, I can never really help him to get to be a better shooter, but I helped him become a great player. But I will go through maybe 30 different things before I might stumble on what works. I'd love to say I know what, how to fix it, but I don't always know. Give me time, I will but it might take a while. I'm gonna run through everything I've learned in my life as a basketball coach and as a shooting coach or a specialist until I find that one thing that works for you that maybe hasn't worked for five years for anybody else, but it made sense to you. Every player is unique and different. You know, let's talk a little bit about that because I feel like, you know, in tennis, for instance, um, you know, Sampras is out there playing and he, he, he strokes a certain way and the tennis pros, we start to, there always seem to be, you know, adjusting the fundamentals and figuring out and they reverse engineer what we see the, the, the players do. And I feel like there's a really big uh, backlash against that. Like, well, you can't shoot like Steph because he's Steph. Or you can't shoot like that guy or do that because he's that guy. Instead of, like, my take on it is, well, let's start to really look at what he's doing and let's reverse engineer these things. I mean, certainly with Steph, 
here's a guy that's doing something we've never, ever seen before on a level of shooting off the dribble and then catch and shoot. Uh, we, I think we owe it to ourselves to really look at what he's doing and figure out if maybe those are the fundamentals that we should be incorporating or not either way. Uh, I feel like there's a resistance to that, but I'm kind of curious, with your experience shooting, what do you feel about that? So I came up with a little formula a long time ago when someone asked me to define talent. And I said, it's in my book, I said, uh, talent is production minus mechanics. Yes. Some people, let's just talk about from shooting. Wad up, you know, get 100 people in a room, wad up a bunch of paper, and have them stand equally equal distance to a trash can. Some guys are going to throw the water paper in better than others. And so going back to what you said intelligently, uh, with those guys, we just want to be really careful. We don't want to overdo it because we're already good at it. Right. The biggest mistake you can make with a Steph Curry is to jumble his mind and body up into a lot of different analytical pieces because that dude just throws it in. Okay. My experience my, you know, my first NBA client was Udonis Haslam, but pretty quickly after that, in fact, the same summer I trained Udonis, I trained a 19-year-old sophomore named Kevin Martin, who was in college. And Kevin shot way across his left eye, mm-hmm. and he was 155 pounds as a sophomore, and, you know, 6'7", 155, 160, maybe 165. He was a tiny, skinny guy, crazy quick and athletic, but didn't, couldn't dribble at all, which is why his coach sent him to me. And over the years, we moved his ball a little bit. It got to be much more near his right eye. And he would bring it down to his hip. It just helped him keep it on that side. That was Pete Carrillo did that, not me. But I just knew this. People can criticize me any, any way they want. They can criticize him any way they want. That dude throws it in. When I say throws it in, I'm talking about there might not have been a day in 12 years. Like he still lives with me. He lives in Clearwater now. Um, I, he comes to my son's games, he and his wife and his, and his child. Uh, there might not have been a day where he didn't make at least 30 straight college threes. Mm-hmm. It, it really was like a layup to that kid. He walked into my gym this summer and he's not touched the ball. He had not, this was in June. He had not touched the ball since January and he made eight straight NBA threes and then he missed two in a row, but it was pretty amazing. My, my guys were in the gym were like, what in the hell? He, some guys just throw it in. They just throw it in. Mm-hmm. And so with Steph Curry, he's got a lot of talent. But it definitely should shatter any illusion that you have to shoot the ball a certain way to make it with that kind of range, especially because he does. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you can't ever be like Steph. So what? So you can't be like Steph doesn't mean you can't come close to it. Doesn't mean you shouldn't try to be like him, unique to your own individual talent. But yeah, that he's just very, he's really gifted. Well, let's talk about Kevin Martin because it directly connects to um, – and by the way, you really felt like he got it back toward the right side because I feel like he kind of still kept it on the left side even throughout his career in the NBA. Oh, it would, it would move it to his right hip, but then it would it – would, it would, I broke it down a million times. It was much more middle. You have to understand that it was three feet to the left of his left eye when, okay. he, when I first met him. I mean, it was – I don't know how he did it. Now, he's, okay. he averaged 22 a game as a freshman and he couldn't dribble – he beat Florida State as a freshman, and as a, as a junior, he scored 40, no, as a sophomore, he scored 46 at Georgia, shooting over his left eye. Yeah. So, uh, right. uh, and I get it. Had, yeah, he, he was probably left eye dominant, right? He wanted to use that left eye to aim, and, and that, and, and which directly connects to Alonzo Ball. And not yeah. that I want to talk about it, because I've done the video on his, and I, and I have no problem with the way he shoots. And in fact, they actually have video now. He's going to his right and pulling up and, and figuring it out. He's making it work. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. But what I want to talk about is that I, I had a tweet the other day uh, based on uh, the Laker game. I think you were watching the Lakers game too. Uh, yeah. Not, maybe you're watching last night. I'm talking about the first game. I watched um, the first game, the whole game almost. And, and then did you, did you watch any of the summer league when he was playing? I was in Tur- I was in Israel and only I caught some because they did show the games there, but it wasn't as many, so I only saw them a couple of times. Well, well, help me out here because I think either I'm crazy or the, the people people on Twitter are dumb, which is you know <laughs> be mixed. Um, and by the way, which is fine. That's why I'm there. I'm here to help. But here's the thing: there was a play where um, you know Alonzo had gone to the bench. And all of a sudden, they get a defensive rebound. It was like boom, 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 four passes, and then an uh, alley-oop dunk. The, the, like one of the fastest fast breaks you're going to see all year long, right? It was, it was beautiful. It was amazing. And the key here was it was an early pass up the court, which I think that maybe you and I are both familiar with. Like when you have younger kids or high school kids or even the college, it's kind of hard to get them to give the ball up early. They want to all dribble the ball up and run a fast break like Magic Johnson, and they're afraid they won't get the ball back if they give it up early. And so, but we're seeing that now across the board with all the Lakers. And we saw that in the Summer League, too. Like, the, and that, the crowd is into it. The, the, the players are into it. They all want to cut and move. And I don't think that people, people fully appreciate when a really good passer gets onto a team, what that effect is on everybody else. And now, and you've seen it, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, very much so. So it's definitely the best thing my son does is what I call hit ahead passes. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, on, a, on a team of nine seniors where he's probably the only softball that'll play varsity. He played some as a freshman. He doesn't have a whole lot of gifts. I mean, he was five, seven a year ago now, maybe five, six. Now he's six feet tall, but he gets rid of the ball so fast. And he really uh, I, I have a player I've trained for five years named Gal Meckel, a brilliant, brilliant passer, one of the best guards in Europe. He's playing in ACB now. Amazing hit-ahead passer, amazing pick-and-roll passer. And he literally taught my son how to throw the two-hand chest pass 50 feet. He taught him how to throw it to a shooter so the ball is spinning backwards violently so that shooter can get it right where he wants it, it seems, and shoot it. And my son really values that kind of stuff. So you are preaching to the choir when it comes to hit-ahead passes and, and quick movement. I don't necessarily agree. I'm not arguing with you at all, Nick, but I don't necessarily agree that that's just Lonzo Ball. I think that, that Luke already said – Get, you know, last year, if you watched the Lakers like I did, anyone gets it, just bring it up. And he said, no, 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 we're going to get to our point guard because I think he knows Lonzo will get rid of it. And and But I think Luke is really preaching because that's how the Warriors play and that's how the Spurs play. But I think the combination is true. So it's not just Luke. I'm, absolute, I'm a huge Lonzo Ball fan, and I absolutely think that that does carry some weight. Corey Brewer's always been a great hit-ahead guy. Corey is a very... He can't shoot, but he's a very efficient player all around and, and, and very willing passer. and One of the least, well, most unselfish guys you'll ever see in the NBA. He just wants to win. He doesn't really care who gets the points. And I think that that culture is starting there. It's one reason why Corey, I think, is still there. Lonzo definitely is that way. Uh, yes, they're, they're going to be so fun to watch mm-hmm. because he's got them doing that. And I think that their transition game is going to be so much better because as much as I love Julius Randle, he's just not a point guard. <laughs> okay. Get the ball in the hands of your guys that can really make easy plays to include getting getting rid of it early. It, it, to me, it's the only way to play, to be honest with you. That doesn't mean you should always hit the ball ahead because there's factors at play. Sometimes I like, I like my point guard keeping it down the middle. Mm-hmm. If I think we have a numbered break, sometimes it's better to throw it ahead early. It depends on who you're throwing it to. But I think, generally speaking, 
I, to me, the game is much more beautiful to watch when they play that way. Mm -hmm. And I think that the league is getting there faster. I think the whole world is getting that way. Yeah, but and, but, and the, the secondary point I was then trying to make was I yeah. feel like the, the presence of Lonzo Ball in practice and in these games is, is there, there's something that is obviously different. They're already better. They're more talented this year than they were last year anyway. But there's something different about the way they're moving that ball. And, you know, I think the problem is with the father, there's a lot of backlash against Lonzo, just already yeah. built in. And it's unfortunate because he is not that way. He's not boisterous. That's he's right. not whatever. But so, so my point is, and I, I've done it because I played, I, I kind of played that way. I used to throw passes just like that, kind of crazy yeah. Nets Johnson passes. And I just know that, like, it, it just it, it influenced everybody else. And everybody else wanted to make those passes and, and move the same way. And I don't think right now I'm on an island here wanting to give credit to Ball for, like, really infusing that energy no, in the ball. No, you're not. You're not. But I, I would argue this a little bit. So, first of all, going, going into last year, Clarkson and Russell are two of the biggest ball stoppers we have in the league, right? So, I don't think Luke, I don't think Luke bothered to try to change him too much because he wasn't going to succeed. They're young guys. That doesn't mean they can't get better because the Nets will really preach that as well with uh, – with Russell, I think Clarkson, I think one of the best moves the Lakers have made is, is like I said already, no one else but Lonzo bring it up when he's in the game. And the second thing is Jordan Clarkson's kind of surrounded with this culture. And so he just seems to be dribbling much less in these preseason games. But here's the here to me is the more important point regarding ball movement. Uh, you're right, of course, that a player like Lonzo and a culture of, of early quick pass and so forth, everyone gets more involved. But more importantly, they'll race more because they have a better chance to get it on time. Mm -hmm. Why would you race for 48 minutes when you know three steps down the floor, you're almost three quarters of the way there, but your point guard is just gonna keep dribbling it. Right. You stop racing. So Corey Brewer is never gonna stop racing, but the other guys would. And now you got a bunch of guys wanting to race because Lonzo just might throw it to him, and so might everybody else. And so they're, they're really one of my favorite teams to watch already, I can tell. Oh, I know. And I, and, and I agree with you also, the dad drives me crazy. I just wish ESPN would stop talking about him. To me, he's a non-story. You're making him the story. That bothers me. Uh, Lonzo is interesting enough to love on his own. I think that's his name. I can't forget the. I get the ball names mixed up. The young ball rookie from the Lakers is a very <laughs> yeah. fun, interesting, talented player. And I also don't agree at all that he that he's a minus defender and always will be. I think he's. A, I think he sucks on defense because every rookie does, and they they suck on defense generally because they're young, um, and they're playing super fast. And there's an adjustment, and they practice for five days. Mm -hmm. That gives them some time. But there's no reason why Alonzo can't be a plus defender. I reject any thought that he can't be a plus defender in this league because he can be. Right. And by the way, not only is he a rookie and he's a young rookie, but he's guard, he's playing the point guard position. So you, right. every point guard gets embarrassed once a game by the other point Always. guard. Always. You know? Right. It's the best league in the world. Yeah. I mean, and I don't know. He's skinny. He's thin. Give him time. I don't know if you know about, like, you know, my – Steph is a really great defender thing. and uh, And I did a video, and, and like, I still get people yelling at me for that. and. You know, I, I even had people who, I, you know, this was two seasons ago where, and I did, a, I did a video where he would stand up big men who try to, you know, po post him up and he would cut a guy's off and he has great hands. And, and I had people say to me, the clips that you showed in that video, even if you want to argue that I was poaching clips, they're like, those are bad, that's bad defense that you're showing in those clips. And I'm like, I mean, sometimes it's the narrative or it's, I don't know if it's, it, you know, there's, there's cultural and very deep-seated issues that we've encountering, I think, across the world now that sneak into basketball. But or not to get too thick, but I do want to mention that what you mentioned as far as the Lonzo sure. Ball, 
uh, and Randall. Randall sprints to the court to the block, and uh, Ball threw the ball about 65 feet toward him, and he wasn't even didn't look back. And the ball whizzed by his nose. He'll learn. Did you see this last night? Yeah, he'll learn, yeah. And, and then you can see Randall. I, maybe I'm making this up, but I almost felt like he kind of like looked around and was like, oh, like I, I, better, I had better look yeah. next time because I don't think he's even used to it and ready for that. In that, I mean, not to say he's like Magic Johnson, but I remember reading about Magic when he first got there and he'd be hitting guys in the head the whole time because they weren't ready for his passes. So I think there's a, a great example of it. we're going to start seeing. I mean, this is violently fast, fast breaks, like, right? Like uh, faster than even like the Warriors. And that, what's, what's fun about it is that it is a lot of control and you never know what's going to happen. The ball could fly in the stands or it could be a dunk. It's the most exciting brand of basketball to me, uh, especially when you have athletes. It's, it, it, you know, it can be difficult if you don't have athletes or skill, or whatever. You know, the idea of playing fast just to play fast doesn't always make a lot of sense. But I think that Luke, uh, I don't know if he's a good coach or not, but I know that he that he's seen what a good team looks like. We know that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, and there's a lot to be said for that. And I love what I've seen so far in the preseason. Something's working in their training camp. They're they're trying to do things the right way. Uh, Lonzo to me. Well, going back to Steph Curry, uh, this is a really important point that I try to make uh, when I talk to players all the time and I talk to uh, media people who tend to trash the James Hardens of the world. And there was a time where James Harden was just an atrocious defensive player. But there, you know, we all, as human beings, and certainly as basketball players, we have a finite amount of energy. We just do for a game. We know this medically now. In fact, I was talking to... Uh, the team that I'm working with in the English Premier League, uh, I was talking to their under-23 head coach, who's from England, and his dad was a famous head coach of Real Madrid. And I said to him, I went to some training camp practices in America for this franchise, uh, and I said, I noticed that no one ever stayed after practice to work on their shooting. This is in soccer. No one ever worked on their 20-foot shots and 20-yard, whatever. And he said, well, they probably were medically redlined. They all had GPSs attached to their weight, their, their chest. They had their heartbeat checked. They, we know how they slept the night before. We were in North Carolina, it was 100 degrees outside and very humid. And the moment the doctors say he's done, he is done. Because the risk for injury dramatically goes up. We know this now. Mm-hmm. We know that's why they sit people out, whatever. So, but it's the same thing, Nick, in games. You have a finite amount of quality energy, quality. You don't just drop dead, okay, quality <laughs> energy. And if you gotta do everything on offense, then necessarily you can have to monitor what you do defensively. So one thing I say about Steph Curry, first of all, in terms of strength, he might be the strongest guy on the team, pound for pound, lower body. Mm-hmm. I believe the Warriors have said that. He, this is no weak dude, okay? Right. But before Durant especially, he carried a huge offensive burden. That team transformed when he became the best offensive player in the league, not named maybe Harden or LeBron. You could argue those top three. But he did it a different way, and he's smaller and lighter. Mm-hmm. It takes more energy to do what he does, and it's not just the shooting. But by the way, and you know this, the shooting coach, if you don't have legs, forget about making those 30-foot shots. Right. And their offense largely is based on how wide that floor is spread and how vertically spread it is because of his depth as a shooter. Okay, So you have to give up sometimes defensively. You may have to mail it in. You may just have to give 50% because he's a pro. He gets it. The high school kid, uh, think about this. When, when Joakim Noah, who plays to exhaustion, okay, you'll agree to that. Joakim plays till he's just dead every time. 
I think he played 24 minutes a game his sophomore year when they won the national championship because that's all he had. Mm-hmm. Look it up. Billy Donovan had to get him out because Joakim didn't know how to rest. Mm-hmm. Well, if you won in the last five minutes of the game, you better pull him out earlier. Well, Steph's a pro. He's a grown man. He knows he needs 30x x minutes a night, depending on who they're playing in the playoff situation or whatever. And so he's going to have to pick his spots a little bit. But but I have total faith in him as a defensive player. He's not Patrick Beverly, but none of us would argue who we'd rather have. Right, exactly. And, and by the way, I love Patrick Beverly, and he was he was oh. he was in midseason form the other night when I was watching. I mean, I, you know, it's crazy how how he, how he can do that. I don't even know if I want to teach trying to pick up three quarter court and the way yeah. he cuts guys off chest Incredible. to chest. Uh, well, listen, we have. I got about. I didn't even get through half the things we needed to talk about. You got to come back on the show. Uh, I got to get out. Are you? If you ever come to LA, or I got to get to Florida. We have to get on the court and just talk That'd some stuff and maybe film that because. Uh, we can have a, a little battle royale on shooting because uh, we got a lot of things to talk about um, about stuff. Let me ask you before we go. I'm kind of curious. I know my, the people listening to this might be interested. Really quickly, yeah. uh, do you feel like following the ball with your eyes after the release is a thing that we at least need to look at? Sure, I've had players that did that. I mean, I've been teaching this game now since 1987, so I've had all Americans going back to 1989 in, in high school going up. I uh, I've had players do everything. Most of my players don't do that typically. Uh, some got, the reason why the obvious one is you tend to jerk your head a little bit when you do it if you're trying to follow, follow ball flight and that's a bad thing. But if you can do it and don't move your head, fine. But most of my guys, uh, I always, I always kind of compare if you're shooting, you want to keep your eye right on the target and really focus. And golf, when I, when I played golf and I learned how to play golf, my eye stayed on what was looking straight down even after I completed my swing. I didn't want to change anything in my focus of that. But every, like I said, everyone is different. Everyone is different. So okay. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say, oh my God, we have to change that. If I was teaching from scratch, I would have you initially focus on the whole rim. And lately I've been more towards back of the rim. I used to be whole rim. Now I'm a little more back of the rim because front rim is almost always going to be a miss. Uh, and I'm, I'm big on arc, obviously. But yeah, once you get to the pro level, especially, I'm I'm game for almost anything. Yeah, okay. you know, guys can adjust lots of ways. Yeah, because if you look at the, the the list of players that foul the ball on the on the release or after release is of great shooters is so long that and like you had mentioned really early uh, quickly before you know yeah. you have a you have in your bag you have a whole list of things that you work with players on you try this try yeah. that try that and so to me it's almost like that is now moving up a little bit higher into my bag where he's struggling he's not doing this I'm like okay let's try this now following the ball. There is some some sort of psychological uh, connection to being a little bit more aware of your mechanics when you follow the ball, and I'm I'm still working on out that stuff with some of these these uh, sports psychologist guys to see if there's any kind of we can get it closer to it. But anyway, food for thought, really interesting stuff. Uh, okay, so promise me you'll come back and we'll do this again yes, in the next few months or something. We'll we'll, we'll do more. That'd be great. Be happy to do it. Appreciate all right, you great. We didn't even talk about Royal Jelly. We didn't talk about anything. So we got to – all right, we'll do that next time. But, again, thank you so much, Coach, for coming on the show. And uh, don't forget, sports fans, the B-Ball Breakdown, not a channel, we're conversation. You in? Are you in, Coach? Yes, sir. Yes, sir.